If you've tuned into the news over the past four weeks, you'll probably know there's a crisis in Sudan. You'll likely also know that the UK and other Western nations have been struggling to evacuate their citizens from Sudan. And you might have been told the conflict is a power struggle between two leading generals. However, if you're relying on mainstream media, it's unlikely you'll know much more than that. Now, that's partly due just to the time constraints of a regular news show. I know only so well that in a 10-minute segment, there's only so much context or information that can be given. But it also has to do with the parochialism of our media. When an international crisis erupts, around 75% of news coverage often seems to focus on what it means for British citizens over there. There's less interest in the event itself. That parochialism, I think, applies not just to space and an obsession with Britain or the West, but to time. And by that I mean to say that the drive to always provide the latest update about an event and to provide it as quickly as possible can mean that much of an audience will be none the wiser as to the meaning of what's actually going on or why the breaking news we're consuming actually matters. Now the idea for the next two episodes of Crash Course is to try to rectify that. To that end, I'll be speaking to Joshua Craze. He's an expert on Sudan, and we'll be discussing the the history of Sudan, how its emergence from colonialism shaped its politics, the social forces behind its history of multiple civil wars, and how Sudan's role in an international system has shaped its politics, shaped its history, and shaped its opportunities. This is the first episode of Crash Course I'm doing like this, so taking a story in the news and doing a one or two part deep dive into the context surrounding it. Along with Crash Course series, I'm planning to do a lot more of these special one-off shows. Um, as ever, Crash Course is funded by our listeners at patreon.com forward slash Crash Course Pod. If you're enjoying Crash Course and want to listen to more of it, please do sign up for as little as £3 a month. We really do appreciate it. Before we get going, a warning about this episode. It is by quite a long way the densest one we've released so far in particular in part one, so that's what you're listening to now. We race through more than 60 years of history in about 35 minutes, so there are a lot of new names and concepts for you to absorb in a fairly short space of time, and that's especially will be the case if you don't know much about Sudan already, um, like I didn't know much about Sudan before I researched this topic and interviewed Joshua. To that end, um, to help you keep pace, there are some names, concepts and geographical facts I thought it might be useful to introduce you Two before we get going. Um, now, I have to say, this isn't really an interview which is based on figures and, and big characters in history. We're talking much more in structural terms. But there are some names which, which come up and which it would be useful for you to have some familiarity with. Um, and the first of those is Jafar Nameri. Um, now, Nameri came to power in Sudan in a coup in 1969 and was the head of government until 1985. Nameri initially pursued socialist and pan-Arabist policies in Sudan, but later um, in his rule he would embrace Islamism and impose Sharia law. So that's Nameri, leader of Sudan from 416 years, sorry, from 1969 to 1985. Um, the next person um, to introduce you to is the one person who ruled Sudan for longer than Nameri. And that was Omar al-Bashir. Bashir ruled Sudan for 30 years, from 1989 to 2019. Like Nameri, Bashir came to power in a military coup 
Um, and if you've heard of Omar al-Bashir, one reason might be um, because he has been indicted by the ICC, so the International Criminal Court, and that's for alleged war crimes in Darfur. So that's one of the reasons he is infamous internationally. Um, someone else who gets mentioned in this interview is Hassan al-Turabi. Um, he was the leader of an Islamist movement which provided the ideological and organisational undergirding of Bashir's early rule. So Bashir came to power as a military general, but he had a movement behind him, and that movement was an Islamist one led by Hassan al-Turabi. Um, finally, the fourth character who is mentioned is Sadiq al-Mahdi. He was prime minister twice during two of the brief periods in which Sudan experienced democratic and civilian rule. The first of those periods was from 1966 to 1967. The second was from 1986 to 1989. So unlike Namari and Bashir, um, Sadiq al-Mahdi was a, a democratic and, and civilian leader. Um, over and above these characters, what else to look out for in this interview is the repeated reference to centre-periphery relations, where the structural analysis comes in. Um, centre-periphery relations are a concept from sociology and political economy in the Marxist tradition. Um, they describe the relationship of exploitation that obtains between a metropolitan centre, so in this case, Sudan's capital Khartoum, and an underdeveloped periphery, so in this case, that south and west Sudan. So it's like the relationships of, of exploitation that might exist between uh, a capitalist and a, a proletarian, but this is between geographical regions of a country which have sort of different economic statuses, different economic and political statuses. So you often have a, a metropolitan centre, a city, um, which is exploiting um, the peripheries. Um, in this case, those peripheries are rich in natural resources. Um, so oil is found in the south of Sudan, gold in the West and the political system in, in Sudan, especially the governance of Bashir, has often or was often um, based on the exploitation of those peripheries for resources to keep control to to keep controlling Khartoum by subsidizing um, people's lifestyles there. So you're exploiting the periphery to maintain legitimacy and support and power um, in a country's centre. Um, in Joshua's analysis, it's that exploitative centre-periphery relationship that explains Sudan's three previous lengthy civil wars. Um, I won't describe those now. We go into those in the interview. Now, one final thing, because it's not said explicitly elsewhere in the show. Sudan is a country in northeast Africa. It's vast. Before the independence of South Sudan, it was in fact the largest country on the continent. It's now its third largest. That's because with the separation of South Sudan from Sudan, Sudan is now smaller. Um, to the north of Sudan geographically is Egypt, to its west is Chad, and to its east is Ethiopia and the Red Sea. Um, as I say, we cover a lot of material in this conversation, but I really think it's worth your time. I got so much out of it. Um, in part two, which we'll release shortly, we'll be starting from 2019 and taking an in-depth look at the current crisis engulfing Sudan. So part two is slightly more newsy than this episode. In this episode, we're taking a real deep dive into the history of Sudan from its independence until around 2019. 
To talk me through the crisis in Sudan, I'm privileged to be joined by Joshua Craze. Um, I came across Joshua via an excellent article he wrote on Sudan in Sidecar. It's a sister website to the New Left Review. Um, that article will form the basis of much of this conversation. I do recommend you check it out. Um, Joshua, thank you so much for speaking to me. Um, and before we get going in, in, in proper, can you explain your background in studying the politics of Sudan? Where are you, where are you coming from here? Sure. So I first went to Sudan in 2006 when I was working for the British Institute in Eastern Africa based in Nairobi, and I was looking at some of the historical documents around the border between Sudan and South Sudan, the country that separated from Sudan in 2011. And then I returned to Sudan in 2010 to do fieldwork for a PhD in anthropology at Berkeley, looking at Abye, which is a contested territory between Sudan and South Sudan. And since then, I've been coming in and out of the country three, four months a year, uh, mainly into South Sudan and not Sudan, but also into Sudan, looking at the conflict in both countries. And what's it like to... um What's it like as a country, you know, to be there? Can you paint a picture? In Sudan? Yeah. I mean, Khartoum, the city that currently has been decimated. I was just on the phone to Khartoum um, this morning and I could hear the the air power and the artillery in the background. It's an incredible all-night city. It's astonishingly vibrant. Um, you sit and drink tea and discuss Gramsci with dentists until four in the morning um, it's it, even at the sort of the worst times of the coup. There was a coup that happened in October 2021. You know, there was still a very vibrant civil society, very vibrant musical life. Um, the revolution's been characterised by lots of music, literature, discussion, and that continues. So it's a city. It's an incredibly multi-ethnic, bustling city that never sleeps and is a real delight to be there. Yeah, it's good. It's good to get that context, just because I know you know sometimes when people talk about especially countries in Africa, when we talk about conflict, it just sounds like they only get discussed as these sort of places of endless war and misery. So it's sort of good to you know, talk about what they're actually like um, to be in. Um, let's go back to the history of the country. So Sudan is a relatively new nation. It was founded in 1956 after gaining independence from the British Empire. Um, can you talk about the circumstances of its independence and the kind of state that emerged from British colonial rule? Sure. So I think even going back before the British, the relationship in Sudan, much more than being an ethnic one, is one characterised by a centre-periphery relationship. So Khartoum has long been the centre of power. It was the centre of the British colonial project, which was an Anglo-Egyptian condominium. So it was also Egypt was one of the colonial powers ruling Sudan. But even going back before then, Khartoum was the basis of an Islamist um, nation. It was the basis of slave traders and the way they've treated much of the peripheries of the country, which at that time included South Sudan, was as a basis for resources and as a basis for surplus labor populations that could be used in agricultural projects. And during this, the independence period, or during the, the British period, really you saw the emergence of the two institutions that continue to this day, really, to dominate the country. One is a political elite around the University of Khartoum. Often that's very sectarian. And the other is the military. And the military was formed on the basis and in the idea of the Egyptian military. And it's between these two forces, largely, that the country's post-colonial history has been spun. I'm supposed to make that centre-periphery relationship a bit more concrete. So talking geographically, in the north of the country, as far as I understand it, you've got a mainly Arab population living on the banks of the Nile. And then in the south of the, popula- in the, south of the country, well, much of the south of the country is, well, what was the south of the country is now South Sudan, which we'll get on to in a moment. But historically, in the south, you had Christians 
Um, and as well in the West, you also had people who were non-Arabs. And I actually wanted to ask you actually, because sort of reading about this, I was slightly unsure about terminology. The sort of ethnic identification in Sudan, um, and I suppose including before the independence of South Sudan, which we'll get onto. I mean, how do different groups describe themselves? Is it Arabs and non-Arabs or is it black Africans and Arabs or is it religion that sort of provides the, the, the more meaningful distinction between groups? So there is no easy way to answer this question. And I think part of the problem of the sort of the 10 the minute time frame given by Al Jazeera, as good a job as they might be doing, is that you have to come up with these terms. And I think the crucial thing to understand in, in Sudanese political history is that these terms themselves are political markers and are modes of political organization that change all the time. So just to take Darfur, which is the west of Sudan, the way the conflict's characterized is between non-Arab groups, like the Zahawa, the Masalit, and Arab groups. Hemeti himself is part of one of these Arab groups called the Rizagat. However, over the last 200 years, there have been groups that have moved into being Arab in their name and moved out of being Arab, depending on the pressing political needs of the moment. And probably the more pertinent distinction actually in Darfur is between agriculturalists and pastoralists. And one of the main antagonisms is almost like structural to the mode of production. It's between groups that farm and groups that move their cows and livestock around Darfur, often in result of climactic shock, and thus impinge on the land of agriculturalists. So you have groups in, in, um, in Darfur that call themselves Arab that are only recently calling themselves Arab and vice versa. So I think that's one sort of strand which is important to say is that these terms aren't fixed. It's certainly true to say relative to the South that the North thinks of itself as Arab. But that's been also something which politically has changed and historically changeable. There are groups in the North that don't consider themselves Arab, like around um, Port Sudan in the east of the country. And the, the sort of the political valence of being Arab really shifts when you have Nasser and you have pan-Arabism as a force in the 1950s and 60s, and suddenly it becomes very important for Sudan to position itself as part of the Middle East, something that the South doesn't associate with, and that intensifies that shift. Islam, again, becomes something that has had various moments of, of, of political importance, right? So if you take out the South, Chris, they're going to leave aside the question of Christianity for a moment, the, the whole population is Muslim but they're from different sects, often different sects that then organize themselves into different political parties. The real moment that um, Islam became really political salient as a mode of political organization was during the 1960s as a way to, for the center, for these very elite riverine families in Khartoum and, and uh, its satellite cities, to try to attack the Communist Party. So there is a raft of series of legislations to kick out the Communist Party, which at that time is the main form of secular organization. And then the political Islam becomes an increasingly dominant force as we're coming into the 1980s. But there's no sort of extant, like, everyone is just, everyone believes in political Islam. No, it's something that emerged and has now, to some degree, also become less of a factor in the country's politics. That's really interesting. So talking about lots of the sort of forces, identification, lots of these themes that will be sort of running through. Um, the history that we're talking about. Let's go, you know, slow down a bit potentially and, and talk about the specific events that sort of characterised the independence of Sudan. So are we talking about a sort of Arab nationalist who gains independence from from UK and Egyptian colonialism? Who, was, who, were, the, who were the founding figures of Sudan, let's say? So England really, I mean, the Anglo-Egyptian condominium sort of leaves as quickly as possible 
from a colony that it never really made financially viable on the extractive basis of its other colonies. And it effectively abandons what could have been a more drawn-out process and discussion about what constitutes Sudan and instead leaves Sudan to a basis in the elite from the University of Khartoum and the military. And those are the people that take power. And then we see through Sudan's history that there are these three powerful popular uprisings. There are popular uprisings in 64, 85, and 2019. And each of these upbringings, leaving aside the last one, lead to a very short-lived parliamentary government. And the parliamentary government actually turns out to be the force that sort of doesn't give the revolutionaries the massive socioeconomic demands that they're, they're making, the demands to reconstitute the politics of the country. And these two unstable parliamentary regimes both sort of reconstitute an elite order based again in these riverine elite families and the army and then fall very quickly prey to coups. So there's a leftist coup in the late 60s and then there's an Islamic coup in 89. And what was the position of the country in the Cold War? It moved. Um, Initially there was the, um, there was a very strong communist party. And Numeri came to power. Um, He was an army officer who led a coup um, in the late 60s. And he quickly found that he needed to break the Communist Party and pushed himself much quicker towards the Islamists. At this, at this time, when the, the second Sudanese civil war breaks out, which is the, I know this is very complicated, which is the moment when all the southern political parties, largely the SPLM, the Sudan People's Liberation Movement, they, they look, so they say, the margins of Sudan are marginalized, they're dominated, we want independence for ourselves, or we want to reconstitute Sudan as a new country, we want to bring the town to the village, we want to generalize development. And from the beginning, in 1983, they receive support from the Derj, which is a Marxist communist-backed regime in Ethiopia. So initially, they position themselves very much as a communist organized resistance movement against the government in Khartoum. Of course, when that falls at the end of communism changes, they change their spots once again and they start to appeal to the, to the American evangelicals. I know this is an incredibly compressed, complicated history that I'm trying to give you. So let's, um, it is, it's incredibly interesting. It is incredibly complicated. Let's talk about those civil wars because um, I think that also brings out some of this conflict between the centre and the periphery that you're talking about. So the first civil war lasts for 16, So the, I mean, Again, it seems like a country that has been in civil war for more years than it than it hasn't been. So the first civil war is from the year before independence until 1972. So that's 16 years. And as far as I understand, that's sort of between the political establishment in Khartoum and the, the Arab-dominated sort of centre of the, the country in Khartoum, or politically and economically the centre of the country, and then the peripheries in particular, um, people in South Sudan or what's now South Sudan and was then part of Sudan. Um, can you talk, I suppose, briefly about the first civil war? Yeah, I think it's, it's first important to say when people think of civil war, I think they think of absolute destruction everywhere in the country. It's the worst, you know, Hobbes says it's the worst possible thing that can happen to man. Sudan has never been a country with a strong state in the sense of a state that has a presence everywhere, a post office everywhere, a sclerotic NHS, you know, whatever you particularly want to have, it's not there. So in the South, the British colonial presence was pretty light, I mean, pretty bad in a bunch of ways, but it wasn't very organized. And the first civil war breaks out even before the country becomes independent, when southern soldiers are ordered north 
from their bases in the south. And they're like, no, no, we're not going to be dispersed into the north. We're going to take up arms. And the, the first civil war really is a series of different groups. I mean, a dizzying number of groups, none of which feel represented in the northern establishment. None of them feel represented in Khartoum. And they all take up arms. And so what happens is that the, the army ends up ruling the towns, basically as garrison towns, and the rural regions are subject to sort of occurring, like intermittent um, raids, but largely keep on doing what they're doing. And in terms of its effect on the north, that civil war has economic consequences structurally, but really doesn't touch Khartoum, right? Like this, for Khartoum, in many senses, the south is a totally different world. Like it's not just a, a, a geographical distance, it's a distance of language. Remember, this is a country at that time with like literally 200 languages in. Many people aren't speaking Arabic in southern Sudan outside of the main garrison towns. They're speaking Nuwur or Dinka or Shiluk or one of the, local, one of the languages of South Sudan. And so the war is this um, intermittent series of, of raids between the military and, the, and, these, and these rebel groups. And what brings the first civil war to an end and why does a second civil war start within 11 years? So the 1972 Addis Ababa Agreement promises the South a regional referendum um, and a, a regional administration and grants more power. So it's, it devolves power. It sort of does a, a Wales and Scotland under Tony Blair um, to the south. And with that, for a moment, comes a government into Sudan that, though it's marginalised the communists, seems somewhat interested in regional development. So there is like there are services being provided. Some of the the auspices, the armature of the developmental state, look like they're in place, and there's a real buy-in. The problem, however, is that almost immediately Sudan, by the end of the the 1970s, beginning of the 80s, is beginning to be racked first by the oil crises and then the debt crises globally, which massively restrict its base, create incredibly high levels of debt, and suddenly all of that. Um, uh, developmental state that had been erected was withdrawn. And what you instead had was the use of violence to try to quell any resistance in the periphery. At the same time, the structural issues affecting the southern Sudanese, questions of racism, their genuine marginalization in Khartoum, hadn't been addressed. And so what you had this time was a new force, much more centralized, much more organized, the Sudan People's Liberation Movement, which really sort of begins to organize itself among southern students in Khartoum's universities, that then breaks out a much more serious rebellion in the South with Ethiopian and thus Russian backing. And so that's, a, that's the, the organised force that fights essentially the Second Civil War, is that correct? Yes. And so I suppose up to now we've been talking about independence. Um, I mean, I'm, I'm going to use 1989 as a marker because that's where we're, we're, we're going now. But you've got a period where you've got lots of different groups in government. You've got periods of civilian rule, then coups, then periods of civilian rule, then coups. Um, a period of stability, at least in terms of who sat in the seat of power, um, was the 30 years from 1989 to 2019. And that was with Omar al-Bashir in charge. Um, I suppose let's start by talking about the circumstances in which Bashir came to power. So 1985, there is again a popular uprising in South Sudan, which very briefly brings in a parliamentary regime which has inherited a state which is incredibly wrapped by debt, just like basically can't do anything, it is a victim of structural adjustment, is a victim of, um, of, of, a, of a global economic shift, and there is increasing disquiet in Khartoum 
And the figure who basically leads this revolt is Omar al-Bashir, who is then a brigadier in the army. But he's not, at that time, despite the fact that he then erects a 30 dictatorship, taken all very seriously. Because the figure who's backing him is Hassan al-Turabi, who is the head of the Islamist movement in Sudan. And this is the figure, really, who is the power behind the throne. And for the first 10 years of Bashir's regime, he is the figure who really provides the ideological and the popular basis for um, Bashir's regime. And what they've done, so what they do is they marginalize even further the Communist Party, which has already been made illegal. They dismember what remains of the trade unions. They set up what are called popular committees. This is sort of like an autonomous um, form of organization, which are groups that exist at every neighborhood designed by the intelligence services to spy on whether women are being chased, to control the placement of football pitches, but also the deliverance of kickbacks. They control the kicks and the kickbacks. Um, and they begin to erect this pretty durable form of rule. And this durable form of rule really isn't novel in Sudan, it intensifies things that Nameri and Sidi Kalmadi, two of the, the former prime ministers, were doing before Bashir. So fundamentally, what are these, these things? One is austerity. The state is massively cut back. We forget about services. We privatize things. And who do we privatize? I mean, we're talking about banking, construction, mining. Who do we privatize things to? Figures inside the military establishment. So it's these figures who are both like state figures, but they're also building up private economic empires, right? Like the obvious um, British analogy is Thatcher selling off the, the council housing to, among other people, several of her friends. So you have this process by which basically the state is privatized and that leads to the question, okay, so what do you do with all the discontented people? What do you do with all the peripheries that now have like no buy-in to the state whatsoever? There are no elections. And what they also then decide to do, which Sadiq al-Mahdi did before and Nameri did after him, is outsource the monopoly of violence. So in the South, where oil has just been discovered, happily for Omar al-Bashir by Chevron, they outsource violence to militias from one ethnic group, the Nur, pitting that ethnic group against the ethnic group that command, comprises the command of the rebel group, the SPLM. So the new are suddenly are sponsored by the government to depopulate the oil fields and keep control of them. And so what Bashir does is basically set up all these ethnicized militias, and here we come back to that first point, right? Like, ethnicity is fundamentally a political device here that he's using, in the same way the British did, to divide and rule populations in the south of the country. And then the third and final thing that he does, which is really Bashir's sort of invent, in like uh, great achievement in the history of uh, infamous Sudanese devices of, of population control, is he starts to set up myriad security services. So his friends come not just from the army, which builds up a huge economic empire, but also the National Intelligence Service, NIS, which is as much an army as the army, in effect to do what political scientists call coup-proof the regime. So you have two forces which oppose each other and which he hopes will keep each other sort of, keep looking at each other so that neither tries to overthrow him by getting too powerful. So I think these are the four element, initial elements of his regime. Islamism, austerity, the use of militias, and the multiplication of security agencies. And that's the formula for rule. And so I, I want to, I suppose, put this, to make sure I understand properly, put it in the simplest terms I can. So you have, until Bashir comes to power or until the, the rise of Bashir, let's say, you have a sort of, 
different competing elements of civil society in Khartoum, including the communists and the trade unions, then he uses the force of Islamism to basically defeat those. Then in the south and the west of the country or the peripheries of the country, there has long been sort of violent disputes between the centre and the periphery. And given that the state is fairly broke at this point, there's a debt crisis, what he does is he employs militias to fight those wars against peripheral populations and suppress them essentially and in return what those what the military and those militias get is they get the spoils of war they get to control various industries in those areas so he's basically fighting a war on on the cheap is that am i kind of there yeah that's that sounds pretty good the, the famous term that alex deval the historian and political scientist of um sudan uses is these fights a counterinsurgency on the cheap and I think that piece is in the London Review of Books and it's very edifying to um, listeners if they want to understand how that counterinsurgency worked. And I, I want to read a quote from your sidecar piece. Um, so you say, Bashir made a Faustian pact with Sudan cities, except terror in the country's margins in exchange for cheap commodities and subsidies for fuel and wheat, whose import required foreign currency obtained from the sale of resources produced in the peripheries. And I think that's the real sort of the economic backbone of this story, right, which is that Bashir, well, the resources of, of Sudan or the natural resources of Sudan are essentially in the south and the west on the peripheries. The The Nile is the more sort of fertile ground, which is why it has a sort of historically richer population. But to maintain sort of long-term support in Khartoum, one of the things Bashir is very effective at doing is essentially extracting the natural resources from the peripheries of the country and making sure that those in Khartoum are able to benefit from that extraction while holding down those peripheral populations. Am I on the right track? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think that, I mean, so the subsidies that he gave for wheat and fuel have a history which is longer than Bashir, right? It's done by Nimeri before him. But what Bashir has, A, is oil, which is fundamental to the supercharging of this sort of transactional politics that he has, where he's constantly paying people off. He's buying off possible threats to the highest bidder and he institutes this form of transactional politics. I think the other important thing to say is that it's a wheat subsidy. And in a beautiful piece by Magdi Al-Ghazuli, which I can send you a link to, it's freely available, he talks about Sudan as being in part the conflict of the sorghum eaters and the wheat eaters which is to say in the rest of this country, people eat millet and sorghum, not wheat. Wheat is the choice of, of the people who eat hobs of bread in, in, the, in the cities. So really what, he's offer, what Bashir offers is this buy-in that says, we will effectively subsidize your lifestyle, or, and, and that's being you know, harsh to the city dwellers. We will make life bearable and possible on the condition that you're okay with the war in the peripheries. And I think what's so powerful about that as a move that Bashir makes is it sets up against each other the two forces that in the last revolution really try to unite, which is, is there a shared interest between the urban populations in the center, oppressed by dictatorship, denied opportunities, denied the freedom of speech, and on the other hand, the rural dwellers who were violently oppressed and their resources are extracted from them. And I think what Bashir did was try to always set these two populations against each other. And he did that very effectively until, as far as I understand it, so the, the end of the Second Civil War, 
um, one of the terms of, of, of the peace accord, which is agreed in 2005, is that there would be a referendum for the independence of South Sudan. We've sort of intimated towards this uh, many times in the conversation so far. But there's an agreement that South Sudan will be able to vote for its independence. They do that in 2011, I think. And after they vote for their independence, that deprives Bashir of one of the key sources of his revenue, which was oil, because 75% of Sudan's oil is in South Sudan. So this sort of very successful model whereby Bashir maintains support in Khartoum by extracting resources from the south suddenly grinds to a halt because he no longer has access to that oil and that creates a bit of a crisis in the regime in Khartoum and they have to come up with a different strategy. So we should also say that the agreement in 2005 between the rebels in the south and Khartoum also included a bunch of rebels in what is now Sudan whose voices were really marginalised by the international actors and who, in 2011, the moment South Sudan becomes independent, go back to civil war. So Sudan goes right straight back into civil war in 2011 in areas of South Sudan, but not the country South Sudan, but the, country, the areas on the border of South Sudan. So South Kordofan and Blue Nile, boom, conflict immediately begins. Because none of their issues about self-determination, independence have been heard. At the same time, Bashir's government goes, uh-oh, how on earth do we reorientate this economy so that I can possibly keep control of all the different security organs that I've created? And here there's two answers. The first answer is he tries to reorientate the economy towards the Gulf. So previously, Sudan's been pretty close to Qatar and to Iran. Iran has a munitions factory in Khartoum. And instead, the Gulf sees this as a moment it can bid for opportunity. It invests in Khartoum, it invests in real estate, it buys up agricultural land. Bahrain buys a, a portion of land or leases a portion of land the size of Bahrain itself because they're thinking about food security in view of future climactic change. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that across the Sahel, as Adam Tooze wrote about in one of his recent newsletters, there's been the discovery of gold. And gold has become this incredibly lucrative resource that is then sent almost immediately to Dubai, creating this relationship with the United Arab Emirates. But gold is a different sort of resource to oil. Oil, you can have, you know, you have your, um, your oil site, you have a force to defend it, fine. This gold is artisanal gold, so to speak, which is to say it's not large machinery gold mining, it's hand gold mining. So it requires controls of massive numbers of populations. And this is where they brought in the, ga the guy currently fighting the army, Hemeti. And I think to, to tell the story of Hemeti, we also need to discuss Darfur, right? So we've, we've talked about the first civil war, which is 1955 to 1972, principally between the North and the now independent South, but wasn't obviously at the time. Then you've got the second civil war between 1983 and 2005, which ends with the agreement that leads to the independence of South Sudan. The, uh, a separate region... Um, is Darfur in the west of the country. And there is, I mean, essentially another civil war, really, between the centre and, and Darfur. Um, can you talk about that, that conflict? Why does that break out? So that breaks out in 2003. So the Second Civil War hasn't ended when there's another war, the, the war in Darfur um, is carried out. This is largely because a, a series of rebel groups emerge inside Darfur um, from largely non-Arab, I mean, entirely non-Arab populations. And they want to contest what they see as the domination of Sudan by Arab groups backed and sponsored by the government. And that backing has included 
included ethnic cleansing, uh, widespread population displacement, the taking over of farmlands. <clears throat> and so you have a number of groups that emerge. These groups are not ideologically um, unified. They're not unified either in terms of their um, ethnic base, so they're drawn from the Zahawa, the Masalit, a variety of different groups. Some of those groups are Islamist, and like the Justice and Equality Movement, others are not. Uh, but they fight a pretty effective war against the, um, against the army, and the army decides, Bashir decides, that it will repeat its strategy from South Sudan, and instead of using the army to fight, it will organize militias. Now, admittedly, in, if you want to get into the, what the historians will argue, they'd say that this that strategy actually began under Sadiq al-Mahdi um, among the Rezagat in Darfur way back, you know, 30, 40 years before the Darfur war breaks out. But let's leave that to the historians and say that what they did was organize these groups called what were colloquially known as the Janjaweed, or the evil horsemen. And these groups were organized under a figure called Musa Hilal, and then later under a figure called Hemati, who comes from a minor Rizagat group. So the Rizagat are an Arab population that are in both Darfur and in Chad. And you see this war, which is a long, drawn-out conflict in Darfur, featuring unspeakable levels of civilian death. Its nickname is often the Land Cruiser War, because people think of war and they think of, you know, I don't know, tanks and planes. This is a war for almost entirely in land cruisers with 12.4 millimeter machine guns on the back of the land cruisers. And these groups of land cruisers will sweep into settlements, destroy them, raid them, and then the other group will do the same to another settlement. And it caused huge amounts of displacement of Darfuri populations. As the war progresses, however, to give you a sort of cheap and dirty version of it, um, a, lot of the, a lot of the Arab populations are like, we're not getting very much from this government. We're not really winning this war. And you see the same with the Nur population in southern Sudan. Like, hold on, we're being employed as militia fighters, but what are we getting? And so a lot of them start to turn against um, Omar al-Bashir. The one figure who really is an exception to that, whose politics is always, he's always thinking at a more national level, is a former camel trader from a minor Rizagat group on the Chadian border, uh, Mohammed Dagalo, otherwise known as Hemeti, or Little Hemeti. Um, and he briefly threatens rebellion in 2006, but he really does that to leverage a better position in government. And I think that's a really good example, really, of how Bashir's regime worked, which is that people would sort of threaten rebellion in order to leverage um, a better position. It's like sort of taking, you know, being at Google and taking a, a job offer from Microsoft to get a better pay rise um, later on inside, inside Google. Um, so he becomes, in 2000. Um, six, seven, leading up to 2013, he becomes the figure who runs what is becomes the formalized Janjaweed, the RSF or Rapid Support Forces, and they become the sort of the third, really major security organ. And he builds them up as a counterpoint to the army and to the um, security services. And in a way, he sees them as the safest of the security organs because they're coming from the periphery. And no upstart from the periphery could ever think they would come to Khartoum and actually pose a threat to his regime, right? So it's like employing the, the stranger to be your bodyguard because the stranger is never going to become the king because he's from outside of the country. And there was some of that assumption among that. And Hemeti, being a good entrepreneur, being effectively a good trader, you know, in the basis of his history, uses that to build up a pretty significant economic empire pretty quickly, fundamentally around gold. His family run and for the government, supposedly, the biggest, oil con the biggest gold concession in Darfur. 
via his holding company, which is a family company um, run by his uncle and then his brother, Al-Jined. Um, and then he also branches out into all sorts of different um, enterprises, iron, uh, trading in the south, real estate. And then he finds that as he's building up this force, the rapid support force based in the Janjuid, it also can be quite lucrative to work as mercenaries. And if you think, really, he's been working as a mercenary for Bashir, this isn't so much of a difference. So he works in Libya uh, on the Emirati payroll, and then he also works in Yemen on the Emirati payroll. And that's where he first meets, really, I mean, face-to-face, -face, a man called Burhan, who is now the commander of the army and the man he's fighting against. And Burhan is also in Yemen because the Sudan armed forces are also being hired as mercenaries, but this time by the Saudis. So you get a sense of some of the regional dynamics and the way the Gulf and the and Gulf's money has increasingly dictated some of the contours of Sudanese politics. So did, did, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure if I misheard you. Did you say that Hamedi and Borhan were at this point fighting against each other? Had they been fighting against each other? No, they were fighting on the, on the same on side. On the same side, I mean, sorry. Well, they were, one was fighting for the Emirates, one was fighting for the Saudis. At largely, the Emirates and the Saudis have been fighting on the same side in Yemen. It's complicated and that would require probably another podcast. But there's also been times when the Emirates have been fighting against the, the Saudi-backed forces. All right, I'm going to try and summarise where we are before taking a break. So, And especially, I suppose, in, in, in terms of the rise of Hermeti, because he is going to come up in the next part of this conversation. So you have a, a war in, in, in Darfur, the centre against the periphery, to fight this war, um, to do it on the cheap. Um, what Bashir does is he employs militias. One of them, the most brutal of them, or the most famous or potentially effective of them is, is the Janjaweed. Um, this is a sort of group of Arab militias who are fighting the non-Arab populations of that region. Um, they end up, these militias end up becoming quite independently wealthy. Hameti rises to the top of the Janjaweed. He is then seen as a potentially loyal loyal sort of henchman for Bashir, particularly because he's not threatening because he wasn't from the capital. So he's not seen as a potential replacement. So he is now sort of established himself as the henchman of Bashir, now in charge of a formalized organization, the Rapid Support Forces, who is making money both from control of gold mines and also and by being employed as mercenaries in Yemen to fight the Houthis. They're employed by the United Arab Emirates. Um, at the same time, the Sudanese army is being paid by the Saudis to fight in, in, in Yemen. But at this point in time, the Sudanese army and Hermeti are still getting along. They're, they're two parts of the, the establishment who are working together. One of them is the Rapid Support Forces headed by Hermeti. One of them is the Sudanese Armed Forces headed by Burhan. How was that? A plus. You, you, have, you have graduated. Congratulations. That was the first part of my conversation with Joshua Craze. In part two, we start from the 2019 revolution that overthrew Omar al-Bashir and the reasons for the failure of a short-lived civilian government that followed that overthrow. And we then discuss the state of play in the current conflict between al-Burhan, who heads the Sudanese army, and Hameti, about whose rise you've just heard. As I said, um, the, the next show is more newsy than this one. So if you're feeling a little bit exhausted um, after the first part of this crash course, lots and lots of new concepts, lots of new names, as I said. The next one, um, because it is a bit more um, related to what's currently in, in the news and we're covering a shorter period of time, hopefully that should be um, a little bit easier to get to grips with. 
Um, as ever, Crash Course is made possible by our supporters on Patreon. To subscribe for as little as £3 a month, go to patreon.com forward slash crash course pod. That will give you access to all past and future shows. Crash Course is produced and edited by Lewis Bassett and Patrick Herdman. Patrick Herdman does the sound design. Thank you.